Hi there. Thank you for joining us on the Redeemer Church podcast. Here at Redeemer, we exist to see Christ exalted in our church, community, and world. It is our mission to lead people into the presence of God, devotion to His Word, authentic fellowship with others, and discovering their ministry. We hope that this podcast is just one of the ways you connect to God's presence this week. Let's check out this week's message. Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. We are in week two of our Asking for a Friend series. And the question that we're going to be asking this morning is, what does it mean to have faith in God? This is a particularly personal question that I've had. Uh, When I was in youth ministry, this is a question an atheistic college student of mine asked me. So this is a real life scenario. It's a real question. I sat and had many, many conversations with my friend at a local coffee shop talking through what is this deal of faith in God. And I'm so grateful for those dialogues for many reasons, but perhaps most of all, I'm thankful for them because these conversations made me critically think about my own faith as we talked together. I had to formulate in my mind things about my faith. I had to respond to hard questions. And ironically, God deepened my relationship with him through having meaningful, intentional dialogue with an atheist college student that was eight years younger than me. And here's what those conversations made me realize. Many Christians do not know what it means to have faith. I came to this realization for two reasons. First, the student had a poor caricature of what it meant to have faith in God, and this ultimately led to his atheism. Where did he get such a distorted view? From other Christians, from his friends, from people that he knew were Christians. And second, I had an undergraduate degree in ministry, and I was working on the end of my master's degree when I realized that I didn't have great answers to the students' questions. I realized that all of the answers that I'd rehearsed really were not enough. They weren't effective. They weren't accurate. So if I didn't have great answers to these questions with nearly two ministry degrees, perhaps there are other people out there like me that are wrestling with answering this question. Here's what I did know. I was armed and equipped with Hebrews chapter 11, verse one, which says this. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Unfortunately, for most of my life when reading this passage, I usually stopped there. And I rarely read the rest of Hebrews chapter 11, finding that there's just story after story about faith, but there's something tucked into the middle of this chapter that starts at verse 13. And I think the answer to our question is hidden here. All these people, that is Abel, Enoch, Noah, and Abraham, were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them from a distance admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. 
If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. I believe a lot of the answer to our question, what does it mean to have faith in God, is tucked into this passage. And we're going to get into that a little later. But before we do, when answering big questions like, what does it mean to have faith in God? Sometimes it helps us get to the answer if we start at what it's not. So if we start about what is faith not? So faith is not about being right. Faith is not about being right. It's not about knowing all the rules. It's not even about following all the rules. And it's definitely not about judging those that do not follow all of the rules. When we attempt to follow all of the rules so that God will be pleased with us, that's not faith. That's legalism. And what's so dangerous about legalism is that it's closely related to self-righteousness. Legalism says, once I know all of the rules, I am capable of saving myself. So just let me know the rules of life, let me know how to play, and I am capable of saving myself. I can obey all of the rules. That's what rule obedience leads us into, this self-righteousness. The reality is that we are sinful beings that are incapable of saving ourselves. Whether we know all of the rules or not, we are not capable of saving ourselves. We're fully reliant on the grace of God. Also, don't worry if you've ever wrestled with legalism. I think we all do. And when we make mistakes, I think our biggest fear is that we're going to let God down somehow, that our actions, our attitudes, the things that we do wrong somehow disappoint him. Well, we haven't let God down. His loving disposition towards us hasn't changed. It hasn't changed from the opening of Genesis through his pursuit of you in Christ Jesus. His loving disposition has not changed and will not change based on what you've done or what you're going to do. We're going to get more into that in a little bit as well. Furthermore, while we're on this legalism track, We shouldn't use legalism as our primary approach to evangelism. What do I mean by that? Well, if faith isn't about following the rules, and we've just outlined, it's not about following the rules, then when I introduce someone to God that doesn't know him, my primary approach shouldn't be to tell them how wrongly they are living, either in their belief system or in their actions. That should not be my primary approach. Even more than that, when I am functioning as a Christian, when I'm doing my day-to-day, when I'm having conversations with other people, what I have to be careful to do is recognize that all of my conversations about God that are engaging people in my community and the people around me, if I'm taking the same type of legalistic bend on how I'm presenting God or how I'm getting at their world system or their beliefs or anything along those lines are actually evangelism. 
We're proclaiming something about the nature of who God is to someone else. And when our primary approach to communication to others about who God is turns into rule obedience, it actually pushes them away from the faith. I have yet to meet anyone that I know of that's been argued into Christianity. I've yet to meet them. Perhaps you've met someone, I'd like to hear about the exchange. But by sheer fact of nature of who we are, it's hard to engage a conversation in an argumentative tone and expect to come out with a positive outcome. If you start fighting with me and you start pushing on me and you start challenging everything that I believe, it's going to be hard for me to hear you because I'm going to be defensive. And the fact of the matter, it just does not lead people into Christ. It actually drives them away from it. Here's what Paul has to say about that evangelism approach, approach in Romans chapter 2, 17 to 24. He says this, If you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Ouch, Paul, that hurts. That's harsh. Here's what Paul's getting at. In the Roman church, there were two different types of believers. So if you read the context of this passage, you go, well, Paul's talking to Jews, not those that are in Christ. No, Paul here is talking to Messianic Jews, Jewish Christians, the first wave of Jews. And he's confronting this Jewish-Gentile divide within the Roman church at the time. And so what Paul's getting at here is that the Jews are being legalistic about the law and the Gentiles are not, but the Jews are lording over the Gentiles the law, telling them this is what you must believe, this is how you must obey the law in order to be part of Christianity. So when we teach others that Christianity is about rule following, then we encourage unbelievers to blaspheme God's name. Legalistic evangelism is why Barna's group research concluded that most people believe Christians are judgmental hypocrites. If you would like to know, read more, the, the book is called Unchristian by David Kinnaman. And it came out in like 2010 or so. So if, if you want to know that book later, shoot me an email. It's also this legalistic evangelism. It's the type of thing that drove my friend away from the gospel. And in so going, it got him talking pretty badly about Christians and pretty badly about the Christian God. This is what Paul means. 
by when we take evangelism and it's legalistic in its form, that Gentiles blaspheme the name of God. When we do that, it leads to blasphemy. Faith is also not about knowing all of the right information. Living a life about, that is oriented around faith is so much more than knowing all there is to know about the Bible. Here's an example of what I'm talking about. I've used this example quite often, so I'm sorry if you've heard it before, but I'm gonna use it again. When I was young, I knew everything that there was to know about Michael Jordan. I knew all of his stats. I knew where he was from. I knew all of his accolades. I knew where he went to college. I knew about his family history. I knew every piece of information that I could. I was the biggest fan of Michael Jordan. Here's the reality. Michael Jordan has no clue who Dave Brown from Manaka, Pennsylvania is. He has no clue. We did not have a relationship. I was a fan of Michael Jordan. We were not friends. There's a difference. James, the half-brother of Jesus, talks about the knowledge of God in this way. James 2.19. You believe that there is one God good. Even the, de the demons believe that and shudder. Faith must be knowing must be more than simply knowing everything that there is to know about God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It must, it must be. And it must be more than knowing everything that's in our Bible. And in case if you're wondering, it is completely impossible to know everything there is to know about your Bible or know everything there is to know about the Trinity. It's, you can't do it. Now, we're going to make a transition here, and I think it's going to be a positive one. I've rarely heard this room this quiet. I think we're going to go up from here. It's going to be good. So what is faith about? Let's talk about some positive things. First and foremost, faith is about developing a relationship with God. Right now, I'm teaching a series on the Trinity for Men's Fellowship, and this past Wednesday, we talked about the significance of knowing God as Father, that even before time began, even before time, He was a Father. Four years ago, I became a Father, which changed me more rapidly than any other experience I've ever had in this life. And as I held my daughter for the first time, I remember thinking, distinctly, I remember this late at night, that there was nothing that I wouldn't do for this little baby. I remember it. John, the self-proclaimed beloved disciple of Jesus. I love how he makes sure that he lets us know everywhere. Beloved disciple. Not only calls God Father, but he also calls him our Father. This is what... 1 John 3, 1 says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. You are a beloved child of God. That is who you are. God looks down on you in even better ways than what I look down at my little daughter in awe and wonder and love. He is 
the person upon whom all fatherhood was built. He is the prime example that we all chase of what it means to be a good father. He loves you more perfectly than any person, thing, or anything else in this world could possibly love you. That is the father's love. That is the father's love for you. You are a child of God. Here's what theologian Michael Reeves said about the father's love for us. The very nature of God is to be affectionate, joyful, and bountiful. The father rejoices to have another beside him, and he finds his very self in pouring out his love. Creation is about the spreading, the diffusion, the outward explosion of that love. This God is the very opposite of greedy, hungry self-emptiness. In his self-giving, he naturally pours forth life and goodness, He is then the source of all that is good. Goodness and ultimate happiness are to be found with him, not apart from him. This loving father deeply longs for a relationship with us. He deeply longs for one. And faith is about developing a relationship with our heavenly father, That is first and foremost what it is. Faith is also about, and this is secondarily, living a life transformed by our relationship with God. Any real relationship that we enter has an impact on how we live our lives, if it's a true relationship. This is especially the case when we enter a relationship with God. So how does that transformation occur? Great question, I'm very glad you asked. When we embrace the truth that a God has created the world which we see, and we further embrace that this God is the God revealed to us in the Bible, we must reorient our lives around this truth. An early church father by the name of Anselm put it this way, I do not seek I do not seek to understand in order that I may believe, but rather I believe in order that I may understand. A theologian by the name of Karl Barth put it this way. The truth of Jesus Christ is not one truth among others. It is the truth, the universal truth that creates all truth as surely as it is the truth of God. The first truth, which is also the ultimate truth. For in Jesus Christ, God has created all things. He has created all of us. We exist not apart from him, but in him, whether we are aware of it or not. And the whole cosmos exists not apart from him, but in him, born by him, the almighty word. Both Anselm and Bart are getting at the same thing. If something is true, that truth must be in place as a result of God's creating work. He exhaled the stars, exhaled. He put everything into being that is in being. If it is true, if it's reliable, if it's something that we can count on, it has come from God's marvelous creating work. If it's true, 
It's God's. A different way to put it is all truth is God's truth. Now, this might sound a bit heady and a bit abstract, but it's actually remarkably practical. Here's what I mean. The foundation of my life must begin with the following four pillars. So think about a foundation. A foundation has pillars that hold the foundation up and together. I've learned more about this renovating my house in Oklahoma with a concrete slab than I ever wanted to know. Just fun fact. But there's pillars to a foundation. Here are the four for our lives. We have a heavenly father that loves us more perfectly than we could ever know or imagine. I couldn't say that enough. You've heard it a lot this morning, but that is the foundation upon which our entire life, our entire identity must be founded in. That I have a father that loves me, and that means I am a beloved child of God, first and foremost. My response to this love should be to love him back. That is what's expected of love. We love with the expectation of love in return. And in that love, we're to proclaim his love to anyone that will listen to us. So that's also part of this love. If we believe that the Father loves us as intimately as Scripture says, then we must be compelled to share that love with someone else. That is the appropriate and right response to this love. And then finally, to do my best to live according to his truth as expressed in the Bible. That he's given us a blueprint, a foundation, a guide for us to understand what does it mean to love and to live in accordance to his love. That's what faith is about. Now here's what faith means. Faith means having confidence in the promise of God. Coming back full circle to our opening passage in Hebrews 11, faith means longing for a better country. It's the recognition that something here in our world, this here and now that we're living in, that something's not right. When we see the boundless love of the Father and know his love for us and yet experience hardship and difficulty in this life, it's a red flag pointing to something is off, something's wrong. The suffering, pain, disappointment that we have all been exposed to runs against the very nature of who the creator, our heavenly Father is. It's the recognition that there must be a sin problem causing the pain and suffering. And that God, through Jesus Christ, did what we never could do, lived a perfect life, suffered in our place, and rose again as the first fruits of the resurrection, and is seated at the right hand of God, advocating for me and advocating for you. It's the hope that there's a day coming when the pain and suffering of this world will stop, that all sad things will come untrue. Here's how the promise is depicted for us in Revelation 21, one to four. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. 
I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed. That that thing that's not right, that thing that's off that we can sense, that disconnect will be taken care of. It will pass away forever and ever. Faith is the confidence in what we hope for and the assurance about what we do not see. The confidence that God is restoring all the brokenness, pain, and sadness we experience in this life and assurance that we are deeply loved by our Father and we will participate in the new heavens and the new earth because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we stand in awe of your love, your tireless pursuit of us. Lord, and despite the sin problem that rages deeply in our soul and deeply in this world, you set forth into motion a plan of our redemption in your son, Jesus Christ, and took the punishment that was necessary to restore order upon yourself because you couldn't bear your children to take it. Lord, forgive us when our life does not walk in step with your spirit. Forgive us when our conversations unintentionally lead us into the path of legalism and distorts faith for others. Lord, create in us a new heart and renew a fresh spirit within us that we may love you with every fiber of our being because that's how you love us. And that we with boldness would proclaim your love on the top of the loudest rooftop that we can find so that your creation may know your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Once again, thank you for listening to the Redeemer Church podcast. To stay connected to all that God is doing here at Redeemer, visit our website at RedeemerTulsa.org or connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Have a blessed week.